0: Hello and welcome to Contemplations and today we're going to be talking about genes, mutants and modern politics which um, is quite an eclectic mix but it all ties together quite nicely. Basically what I'm going to be talking about in in sum is uh, genetic influences on politics and this is something that up until sort of the early 2000s much of human political behaviour was explained and conceptualised as entirely environmental. People didn't really believe that there was a biological Influence upon it, they believed it was a a uniquely human thing, as is consciousness, and therefore perhaps uh, a a social. That's
1: not entirely the case, but I'll let you continue Mm -hmm. because I have at least in the realm
0: of of psychological research, Mm -hmm. and particularly um, when it comes to published research as well. I I don't doubt that people would have been looking at it from that lens. It's not necessarily too uh, left of field to assume so the actual research itself didn't really kick off properly. I I don't doubt that there's probably some early movers but I'm going to be talking about the ones that actually got the ball rolling and have um, started people looking at this properly and this is normally about in in 2005 um, with this paper here. Are political orientations genetically transmitted? And Basically the, the methodology is one that um, has become idiosyncratic with looking at the influence of genes on human behaviour. They um, looked at mon- monozygotic and dizygotic twins. Are you, you familiar with those those terms before? No, I'm not. Okay, so a zygote is a fertilised egg. I feel like I'm your dad explaining that's, how the birds fine. and the bees treat, work.
1: Treat me like a retarded child you've been introduced to. That You that shouldn't to be too difficult. To. There okay. You, go. Um, you uh, always do anyway.
0: <laughs> You're welcome. Um, Yes, a a zygote is a fertilised egg, so as soon as the sperm has entered the egg, it becomes a zygote. And a monozygote, if you're referring to twins, are twins that shared the same egg that split, and therefore they're identical twins. Whereas dizygotic means that there were two eggs, each were fertilised, but they had a different mix of their parents' genes, and therefore they're slightly different. Oh, all right. So um, by comparing these um you can tease out genetic factors because obviously monozygotic twins share 100% of their genes because they shared the same zygote whereas uh, dizygotic twins share about on average 50% and so that's quite an easy comparison of course there is a certain amount of variance in the dizygotic twins because you know sometimes there's a, a, a by chance there could be more difference or or less which is why there's a fair amount of variance between siblings sometimes if you might have noticed that you know anecdote is quite often useful in this sort of thing because people notice and pick up on these things but it's it's down to science to kind of formalise principles
1: yeah well the thing is that when we're speaking about human experience anecdote is always going to have to take some kind of a play uh, factor mm-hmm. into it because any single anecdote when compiled with other anecdotes actually becomes more of a data point mm-hmm. over a larger analysis of the trend
0: yeah well the unconscious mind, although it's certainly not perfect, is quite good at looking at trends and patterns over time. It's why sometimes you get people who say, Oh, I, I knew this person, and they, they kind of gave me the creeps, but I couldn't put my finger on it, and then it turns out they're like a murderer. And obviously you can't just they're not emanating murderer out of their paws, but there are just things that people can pick up on. Bits of bit
1: ticks of body language, mm-hmm. the way that they behave.
0: It's not the best example because of course people might just be um, saying, oh, I knew. I had my suspicions just so they don't look oblivious. But you get the gist of what well, I'm trying to, to say.
1: To paraphrase Stalin, you could say that one story is an anecdote, a hundred stories is a study. It's
0: mm-hmm. quite good. I didn't know he said that, to be fair.
1: Well, no, I, I, he said one death is a tragedy, oh, right. a, a million is a statistic.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, so with um, monozygotic twins... Um, If they're more similar on a given trait than dizygotic twins, this provides evidence that genes significantly influence that trait. And if monozygotic twins and dizygotic twins share a trait to an equal extent, it is likely that it's environmental. And so that's our way of teasing out genes and environment, because, of course, um, with twins, um, even if they were separated at birth and raised differently, chances are they're still in a relatively similar culture because they're going to go into, say, Adoption institutions, or something like that, and they're going to end up in relatively similar places, and so you've got to isolate those factors because you know you. There were studies where they looked at twins that were separated at, at birth, and simply said, "Well, if there are differences, it must be genetic," but um, or similarities as well, um, either or. But that is kind of an imperfect way, and so through using this methodology. It's a good way of isolating potential extraneous variables that could alter the result in a way that might be misleading. But anyway, all of that explanation out of the way, this is the main methodology that's used in lots of these studies. So it's important to explain it to begin with, but it's, it's relatively simple and it makes intuitive sense, right? I, I would like to hope. Yeah, it makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. So this this initial study that kicked it off, I'm just going to read um, a little bit from it. It says, um, the results indicate that genetics play an important role in shaping political attitudes and ideologies, but uh, a more modest role in forming party identification. As such, they call for a finer discussion in theorising about sources of political attitudes. We conclude by urging political scientists to incorporate genetic influence, specifically interactions between genetic heritability and social environment. Into models of political attitude formation, so they're they're basically saying, "Hey, we found this thing. People need to study this more because it's not being studied and it gets underemphasized." But um, what was it you were going to say? Um,
1: so, what I was going to say was the studies that have been done into genetic research and whether the expression uh, of the phenotype and people's behaviors and such is entirely down to genes or down, entirely down to environment. I think it's a pretty reasonable uh, stance to take that it's probably a mixture of the both. Of course, yeah. Um, We're going to be getting into that as well. Seems seemed to have been massively delayed for a time by, um, in the early 20th century, have you, I'm, I'm sure you're aware of Franz Bose, the anthropologist.
0: I know of them, but I'm not uh, as familiar as I could be.
1: So so he, I think he started the anthropological school at columbia university and he amassed a large sphere of influence and went on to influence a lot of very very important anthropologists from the early 20th century including margaret mead and ruth benedict yeah i didn't think that you would be a particularly big fan of those two i think they were direct students of his and he made it his mission to try to destroy or prevent any studies being done that would examine the role of human genetics and human behaviour. Because obviously in the latter half of the 19th century, there was the eugenicist movement in Victorian England. You had in the early 20th century in America, you had people like Madison Grant doing what was essentially racial science, which has a very bad name these days, but at its base level is studying whether genetic differences between peoples and larger groups have an effect on their abilities. And I uh, and he wanted to prevent that, mm-hmm. so this was something that we probably would have had a lot more research into earlier on than at the beginning of this century if it hadn't been for a concentrated effort to try to prevent that and It seems that Franz Bose, through his influence that he had, was able to prevent a lot of research being done.
0: This is similar to how the Frankfurt School. Wanted to push the notion of the authoritarian personality. I think we've covered this before, haven't we? Yes, yes, we have. And that halted a proper understanding of political psychology for quite some time because people were hung up on it. And then people realised that actually, no, this doesn't really work. There are so many inconsistencies. What are we doing? But you know, there's there's still some interesting things that came of it.
1: Of course.
0: So it, it's not all bad, I suppose. You,
1: if you uh, while you're talking, if you just let me double check something. I of want, course. I, I, I'm sure that there is a connection between. Margaret Mead and the Frankfurt School So it would be very interesting Here, we, here, here it is, apologies for the wait there um, Despite the fact uh, blah, 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 Mead was on the advisory board Of the Frankfurt School They were attached to the incident, uh, Institute of uh, Sociology
0: Of course
1: I, I believe um, their anti-Semitism project, which was the one that funded the and produced the authoritarian personality, which was the massive study that you're talking to, Margaret Mead was on the advisory board of that. So there is a direct link between these two movements that were vital for stalling a lot of scientific, biological and psychological research that could have been done for mm-hmm. a long time.
0: So in many ways, actually, this sort of stuff is picking up more than ever. And it's good news. It's why I don't like it when people say, um, back in the day, like Milo Yiannopoulos, just like, our oh, psychology is a load of rubbish. It's also a social science. To which I say, no, it's the study of the individual. Sociology is a social science. But there is social psychology which overlaps.
1: I think people mistake psychology for psychoanalysis, mm-hmm. <clears throat> which, well, from what I've looked into for the most part, the Freudian style of psychoanalysis seems to be a load of rubbish.
0: It is, yes. Um, I, I think we should actually cover this at some point, because I, I would like to break down what's good about it, because there are some good parts that are quite profound, and there are, there are some things that are just complete nonsense that are the ravings of a madman, or a, a pervert is probably well, more Well, that's the thing.
1: A lot of Freudian psychoanalysis seems... Uh, uh, which was very influential, again, it all ties together, um, Mm -hmm. which was very influential for the Frankfurt School. I think at the beginning of the authoritarian personality, they dedicate part of it to Mm -hmm. him and say that he was such a big influence. A lot of it seems to be sexual perverts and subversives arguing that, did you come from a normal family? Did your parents love you? Well, guess what? They just wanted to have sex with you and you probably want to have sex with them, you disgusting freak.
0: (laughs) Yes, that's not true, by the way. No. Right. So I'm going to talk about um, genes and group cooperation, because one thing that politics certainly is, is, uh, an exercise in group cooperation. And this is sort of the, the large scale framework, because you can also use more general, um, genetic research that isn't necessarily politically focused, um, to have an explanation of this, because it also talks about, um, why and, and how there are these, um, differences between people's political positions, depending on, say, things like ethnicity. That's a shorthand way of understanding their genes, essentially, because people of a similar ethnic group share genes, which is important because um, people who share genes behave differently to those who they don't share genes with, which shouldn't be a surprise to anyone um, if you have a pair of eyes and ears in the 21st century. So first thing that's important to talk about is genetic relatedness. Um, So there's a natural inclination to form groups with people who are genetically related to you say, a family, Um, an extended family, or people who grew up in a similar area to you that are more likely to share genes with you. Um, It means you're more likely to form groups and cooperate with close relatives because of the shared genetics, and this is just a strategy that exists in non-human animals as well. It's not necessarily uniquely human, and it just means that your genes are more likely to be passed on Um, because they share genes so even if you know an accident happens and you die at least you've done something to help the people who are related to you in some way or at least similar
1: i've seen that used as an explanation for uh, nationalism as well Mm -hmm. why people would be willing if they don't have children to sign up for the military to protect their own nation and their own people because as you said even though you may not be directly related to them. If you're of the same ethnicity, you share enough uh, genetics so that if you die and end up defending somebody else who's able to raise their own family, then you are still defending your own ethnic gene pool.
0: Yeah, and there's certainly some truth to that. And I think that that there's there's something deeply biological to motivate people to face near certain death, right? There's, There's something profound going on there. And the most profound biological thing is... The passing on of one's genes, you know, the the reason that all life on Earth exists is because people reproduce and therefore it makes sense that this is the fundamental um, principle by which life on Earth operates under. And I I think that that's one of the um, things that Richard Dawkins of all people, I know he's probably not popular in the audience, but he took a genes-eye view of things and changed how we viewed things because beforehand we viewed it at an individual level and there were some inconsistencies, but if we look at the genes all of a sudden it starts making perfect sense. And I think it's it's a very powerful way of looking at stuff.
1: I imagine Dawkins would classify himself as an anti-racist and people who take that perspective tend to try to downplay the role of genes and group evolutionary strategies in Mm -hmm. human societies because they see it as an avenue for people to start making racialist theories and gin up nationalism and other things that a lot of anti-racists find to be uh, completely anathema.
0: Yeah, and I think it's it's something that is actually quite interesting to look at because it tells you um, what is deeply coded in yourself, what's going to be difficult to remove, and what is social. And a lot of the group preferences, for example, seem to be encoded in us. And so all of the, these sort of efforts to make everyone just associate with everyone It's not really going to work in the end because we have these encoded preferences in ourselves that we're not necessarily even aware of and we'll be getting into that a bit more. But um, I'm just going to finish off talking about this because I've got a lot to get through. Um, Studies show people um, like people more as well who are more genetically related to them even if they're not aware of this relatedness and that actually plays off what I was just saying quite well. So you can meet someone and you can just score how much you like them on first impression And generally speaking, with other factors controlled for, or just um, getting a large enough sample where the factors are kind of, um, sort of, uh, what's the word, canceled out, and the genes shine through, you can see that this is a relatively strong effect. And I think also people just looking a bit like you um, makes people rate them as liking them more. So it might be quite a visual thing where People who look similar to you uh, are likely to share genetics, and therefore people like them more. It's not necessarily narcissistic, as it's not operating on that part of the brain. It's more unconscious it's, than that.
1: It's something that's hard-coded into us. Yes. And this is something interesting when you talk about how people look, is that this doesn't have to take such a bird's-eye view of nationality or even ethnicity. In England, for instance... It is quite easy if you travel from region to region to see the visual differences mm-hmm. between peoples of those different regions, like you as somebody from Devon looks different and than you would find of people maybe up in um, up in Newcastle. I'm not really especially typical
0: north. of pe- of people from Devon to be fair
1: that's so. true, that's true, but having gone to Cornwall, for instance, mm-hmm. Cornish people have a certain look. Whereas people in the far north have a particular look as well.
0: I know exactly what you mean, yeah. I, I I find this fascinating because you can kind of guess. Like I can normally spot a Welshman quite easily.
1: Yeah, especially yeah. if they're one of the ones where, because Welsh have the interesting quirk of occasionally having a phenotype with much darker skin than you expect for people mm. native of the British Isles. So they're quite easy to pick out. I think my dad might be a bit more Welsh than I am because he's got very dark skin for a Northern.
0: I think it originates from Northern Iberia. That's why some British people have um, genes similar to the Basque region of of Mm. Northern Spain. And I I haven't looked into it, but I wouldn't be surprised if I did because, you know, I get my olive skin from Scotland. How did that happen?
1: Yeah, well, my dad looks Indian when he's got a tan. So does mine, actually. uh, (laughs) And I don't tan at all.
0: (laughs) It's funny how it skips, isn't it? So... Just a short word about um, cooperation more generally, Um, those with certain genetic variations may be more inclined to help others and cooperate and form bonds, which makes group formation easier. So there are people who are just genetically predisposed to form groups more often than not. Um, And say in our hunter-gatherer past, forming a group, of course, may be the difference between life or death, because um, as an animal on our own, we wouldn't be able to match up against, say, a lion or a tiger whereas multiple of us you know stood on our hind legs with our lowered esophagus can make very deep noises and we have our arms free so we can pick up stones and throw and that will intimidate the animal away
1: you referencing the stone has reminded me of that image the man throwing the stone oops sorry animal kingdom i just learned to throw a stone (laughs) you're
0: screwed (laughs) that's how it all started everyone Um, So social cognition is also an important factor as well, and of course genetic factors impact mental processes involved in perceiving, interpreting, and understanding social stimuli. Um, This shouldn't really be a surprise for anyone because there's a large amount of variation of people's ability in this, Um, and of course this also relates to things like empathy, theory of mind, so how well you can understand someone else's mind, which is uh, a sort of Sub facet of empathy, as well as just your general social perception. So, someone can, you know, not be very empathetic, but they can be quite socially perceptive and therefore compensate for it. You get this um, with uh, the uh, autistic psychologist, uh, Dr. Temple Grandin, who basically hid her autism from a, a room full of psychologists because she'd learnt the social cues and could navigate that world so well, but it had been rote learnt. Rather Mm. than it just being instinctual, um, as I find it to be,
1: women too are often much better at um, masking their, uh, masking those sorts of things.
0: They're less likely to have the more extreme variants, and autism in particular is something that means that people struggle with these sorts of skills, Um, and yet uh, as a population, autism is relatively common, and of course there's some evidence that some specific individuals actually have improved systematising abilities and my understanding of this um, correct me if I'm wrong in the audience but it was quite a while ago since I studied it was that it's similar to how you know if someone becomes blind they um, have a slightly better sense of hearing it's not necessarily true of everyone um, but for some people the absence of a certain ability means that another ability becomes more refined and they're better at it but
1: that's interesting i I always thought that was tv magic when they play up those kinds of things Mm
0: -hmm. but um the the important thing is in a population of human beings what you've got there is you've got a variation or a series of specializations having someone who's good at systematizing more so than your average person might actually be quite helpful but then you also want the majority of people to be good at socialising and getting along so that they can keep the group harmonious. So there's um, an argument that these sorts of things played some sort of su- survival advantage in a group setting, because having one or two people in a group of, say, 50 that were good at that sort of thing, um, the the social um, disruption, that's a bit of a harsh term, that they cause... Would be mitigated against because all the other of the other people would be competent enough to keep things harmonious, and they wouldn't be causing too much disruption. Um,
1: yes, it's, it's kind of a um, a division of labor, but on particular traits that are selected exactly. within groups. I know that people like Steven Pinker are very. Harshly against the idea of group selection because they say things like, well, you know, selection takes place on the individual level, so therefore group selection isn't a thing. But that's not really looking at the argument that's being made on group selection. The argument mm-hmm. that's made on group selection is that individuals within the group will still be considering what is best for the group when they're making their own individual selection choices. Yeah, as well. well,
0: you can just use anecdote here. Like when you live in a a household and you've got you know significant others, family members and what have you, do you make decisions purely on your own or do you make decisions considering other people? I think 99% of people are going to to say the latter, aren't they?
1: Yeah, clearly. And um, whether or not you realise it, once again, with the expression of because some, some would make the argument that the in, entire phenotype of yourself is purely the expression of your genes mm-hmm. obviously that's discounting the environmental factors, but when you're saying that you will be attracted to people with similar genetics as yourself. If you're selecting for a partner, you'll probably be selecting for somebody who is relatively similar to you. Mm -hmm. So if you are one person in a group, if you are the one who's excellent at systematizing, everybody else is great at socializing. If you can find somebody else who you can potentially produce offspring with, who's also excellent at systematizing, you're probably likely to be attracted to them Mm. because of those similarities. And it's, it's something that propagates itself.
0: Yeah, the, the sort of old adage of opposites attract isn't really something that holds true in the evolutionary biology literature, uh, unfortunately. Oh. I mean, uh, it's, it's a nice old notion. Old wives'
1: tales do often have truth, but not always. hmm I think people find
0: opposites interesting, though, don't they? That's the the thing. They attract, but they don't always work. That's my caveat, I'll add. Yeah. So the final thing before we get on to ethnicity is just talking about oxytocin receptors. So... um oxytocin of course is known as like the the love um chemical you know it's when you're in love with something someone you get an elevated level of oxytocin but it serves lots of other functions as well um so the oxytocin receptor gene is involved in regulating the hormone oxytocin um which also plays a role in social bonding and trust so some people will have a, a sort of higher threshold and therefore be more prone to bond with people quickly and more trusting of people and those two things are sort of um, bound together because of course if you're skeptical of someone then you're going to be a bit more standoffish and find it harder to bond with them if you don't trust them and so it makes sense that these two things are paired together in a sort of neurochemical point of origin and basically yes the more oxytocin you have the more bonding and trust you have And so that's basically how it works. So you can be sort of predisposed to be very um, quick to latch on to someone and trust them, perhaps mistakenly or not. But um, I find that this is something that I don't necessarily have. I'm I'm quite (laughs) sceptical.
1: I think I can probably be a bit prone to be kind to people when I should be sceptical of them. Uh, But I try and temper that with some very conscious Mm -hmm. scepticism.
0: Yeah, and it's important to say as well that you're a conscious being. You're not doomed to necessarily repeat the behaviours that you're predisposed to. You can mitigate against the excesses of your nature, and that's how I like to view it. Because I remember being about 19 and, and learning about lots of this stuff and sort of interpreting it as I'm doomed to just do what I've been programmed to do, like a computer and i've got don't really have any agency over myself and then i realize that's not true don't be an idiot and um it's worth emphasizing because sometimes people misunderstand the implications of what's being said here and it's not you know there's no death sentence mm-hmm. if you if you can make it work then great
1: and when we talk about group selection as well there might be some people who are watching this and going like well you know I don't behave in that way. I don't do this. I think it's important to note that from studies that I've seen and read, it seems that we in the West, particularly Northwestern Europe, are very uniquely individualistic in the yes. rest, uh, in compared to the rest of the world. We were put into an environmental situation where it was a lot more successful to not be quite as groupish as people in other parts of the world were. So we've developed under different circumstances where we for instance we had the nuclear family in england in particular very very early i think in the 12th century is when people started to really separate into nuclear families probably even earlier than that but obviously the dark ages has a dearth of material that we can refer to on it so if you are listening to this and saying that well this doesn't reflect my experiences um it probably will in some way but also we're naturally predisposed to be less groupish than other Mm -hmm. people's.
0: Yeah, and of course there's also lots of variation in human beings anyway, so we're talking about general trends an exception doesn't necessarily define the rule, and that's always worth emphasising. So On to something needlessly controversial, but I wanted to talk about it anyway. Why not? Let's have a look at um, some genetic haplogroups here. Why
1: are haplogroups controversial? Because I know uh, Tom survived the jive. He talks about them quite often. I see quite Mm -hmm. a few people talking about it. I don't understand why they're so controversial. Is it Because it's
0: basically a a rebuttal to the left-wing notion of um, open borders. Because you look at a map of Europe, say, of why DNA haplogroups are I'm I'm not going to go into the 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 trouble of explaining this but why DNA I think comes from uh, one of your your parentages and it's just a way of tracing uh, genetic points of origin and and things like that. And so you can see here um European divides sort of western Europe and eastern Europe, um northern Italy with southern Italy. Of course northern Italy um Quite affluent, quite developed. Southern Italy, quite poor. It's not necessarily of genetic cause. Of course, there's a change in temperature there. Northern Italy is quite alpine, so mm. it is quite complicated. But you can also see in in Britain, for example, um, you can th-
1: see where the Vikings landed and left. You there can, in print. yeah.
0: Um, you can also see that London and the sort of southeast is different to the southwest and Wales and Scotland and some of the north, sort of the eastern north and Ireland. And, you know, I get all of my genes basically from those areas that aren't where the Vikings and Anglo-Saxons were, which is ultimately what that imprint is. You see that sort of orange colour, which comes from sort of northern Germany. And, um, of course, Denmark there is a combination of the Proto-European and the the German there.
1: The Teutonic peoples.
0: I suppose so, yeah. Yes. but um,
1: I'm kind of on the border lines on where a lot of those parts cross over which would explain you know i've got scottish i've got english and i've got some danish in me as well mm-hmm. and only one percent welsh
0: yeah well i don't have any welsh but i've just got a lot of britonic um
1: not the worst thing all no, celtic no. peoples really
0: yeah, yeah yeah of course um so i've probably got a lot of overlap with the welsh just not directly from wales i think britonics are more of a general term just for the the pre-Anglo-Saxon, pre-Roman sort of thing. But yeah, I've got 1% Norwegian, which is from Scotland, of course. You know, that the Norwegians controlled the Orkneys and they were relatively close. Mm. But I think I've got 2% German from the Anglo-Saxons and 0.5% French from the Normans. So there's there's been an impact there, but you know, it, it explains why um, I feel a lot more affinity with you know more celtic peoples than mm-hmm. um the, the the germanic or scandinavians although i've met lovely people from there it's not saying i don't <laughs> like them by the way
1: some of them i'm sure <laughs> are fine people <laughs> some of them are my good friends um
0: <laughs> but it, it's just about group identity really isn't it that's the, yeah. that's the thing and, well it's, and-
1: it's interesting like you say how you can trace history through looking at this like looking at iceland for mm. instance you can see that it was it is a land that was entirely colonized by i think the norwegian vikings Mm. and this haplogroup map reflects that and it reminds me somewhat of those maps that you see of wolves marking the territories and their, their territorial boundaries that they set for themselves which are all very clearly marked and all of the other wolves in a particular area will respect those borders and boundaries which once again is another blow to the head of any leftist argument, saying that borders are just an imaginary human mm-hmm. construct, man. The, v- Yanis Varakis saying that, oh, it's Varoufakis, a failed, yeah. Var, yeah, yeah, that twat. Saying that they're a complete uh, corruption of human nature. No, they're an expression of human nature.
0: They certainly are, yeah. You can also see in Greece there um, a sort of Greek holdout, as well as the north, um, northern, southwestern Asians, which are basically the, the Turks, you know, um, mm. They they were, of course, steppe people that moved in.
1: Stelios is going to be furious when he sees this man.
0: I, I showed, I, I've showed it to him already. Um, I did point out to him that Athens is uh, still largely Greek there, I think. So, um, yeah, you see these little pockets here from the Ottoman occupation and things like that, particularly where there's that strait um, at the entry point of the Black Sea from the Mediterranean. You can see that sort of side of things, where it would have been the most reasonable place to cross. There's more... Um, people there and so you can see the impact of migrations you can also see uh, a little bit of an impact on sort of eastern Crimea as well um, Mm. in the Black Sea as well and you can also if you look at um, parts of Scandinavia you can see why it's Norway um, Sweden and Finland because they are somewhat distinct from one another The, the Norwegians having a a lot more overlap with some of the other groups and the Swedes being more of the uh, Northern Proto-Europeans and then you look at Eastern Europe and you have little pockets there in certain countries Um, the Southern Proto-Europeans there, that's sort of your Baltic and uh, your Romanians and Bulgarias and all of a sudden the country's borders start making some sense and it's not necessarily politically correct to point out that yes the reason the borders exist in the way that they are of course they're not perfectly on the edges or anything like that but
1: well that's that's the thing just because there are fuzzy edges of the boundaries mm-hmm. doesn't mean that what the boundaries what uh, uh, doesn't mean that the category for the boundaries around doesn't exist
0: yeah and i think that that's part of the reason why they're controversial is it It gives credence to nationalism. And I'm not necessarily a massively nationalistic person. I don't necessarily have an agenda. I'm more of a sort of localistically focused person. I'm I'm more nationalistic for this this, this sort of county of Devonshire than I am (laughs) the whole of England, because I associate that with home. You know, if I, I talk, I, talk I, of England, it's almost too big for me to fathom.
1: Despite the fact that England is quite a small place. Yes, yeah. I, I find myself having a bit of a hierarchy of values with it where, yeah, Cheshire, where I'm from, is home to me yeah. more so than England. Cheshire and the whole area of Mercia is where I grew up and what I'm most familiar with. And so I have the most attachment to that. But then if you ask me to zoom out a bit, then yes, it will be England and Mm -hmm. then zoom out even further. Once again, I'll have all of these hierarchy of values, which is why whenever Mm. anybody says, think of humanity as an abstract whole, that makes no sense to me whatsoever.
0: I mean, you you zoom out again, and I would say European, but I I wholly agree with what you're saying. It's why I feel like when there's a certain amount of solidarity amongst Europeans. They might have a go at us, like we might bicker amongst each other like siblings but then when an outside power comes in and and attacks one, even if it's, you know, someone I don't know, from Asia insulting another European country be like, hang on a minute where are you from again exactly?
1: (laughs) To watch the full video, please become a premium member at lotusedus.com